Hello, I'm Farajasat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. We were sort of like the bogey family in the street. We used to get our windows smashed in. Sometimes when I say this to people, they think I'm being over the top about it. He just forgot your name. That's all. It's no big deal. But actually, it's a really big deal. Because if it's happening on a micro scale, it's also happening on a macro scale. I may appear to be an establishment figure, but if you look at what I do within those institutions, then actually I'm dismantling the status quo from within. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoyed this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Bernardini Varisto, MBE, is a multi-award winning novelist, poet, playwright and critic. Her acclaimed books have been described as fizzing with subversion. They include Mr Loverman, about a gay Caribbean man living a double life, Blonde Roots, a satirical slave narrative flipping the races and The Emperor's Babe, about a young black woman in Roman London. Born in south-east London to an English mother and a Nigerian father, Bernadine is Professor of Creative Writing at Brunel University, but then she won one of the most coveted and famous prizes for fiction in the world, the Booker Prize for Fiction. And it was for her, I right, think it's your eighth book. Yes. Yes. The novel Girl, Woman, Other, a gripping, entertaining ride through the voices and experiences over a century of 12 British, mostly women, of black heritage, including a radical feminist activist, writer, a country farmer and a young Oxford University student. The book is funny, moving and passionate and full, it feels to me, of a lifetime of experience and knowingness. Bernadine, thank you so much for coming in. It felt, it felt like it was about time. And so, first of all, congratulations Thank on the Booker Prize. Thanks very much. I counted you already hold 22 international awards and fellowships, including the Royal Society of Arts, the Royal Society of Literature. So how does it feel to be the Booker Prize winning author, Bernadine? Well, that's, I think it's taking my career into another league. You know, it's just a wonderful honour. The sort of longer it goes on in terms of me having won the prize, the more important I realise the prize is. Because you always know that the Booker Prize is the one to get um, for a novelist in the world, in fact. But 
once I got it, everything changed. You know, it really was a game changer for me in the sense that um, my books has now sold around the world in terms of foreign rights, translation rights, and it hadn't beforehand. And, you know, film companies uh, came calling, many of them, and we're just about to sign a deal with a film company. Uh, The book is doing really well in America because they pay attention, well, Hopefully, because they like the book, but also it's it's it raised the profile of the book in America because they pay attention to the booker. You know, they they consider it such a prestigious prize. So, it made all the difference when it was published there three weeks after I won the prize. Um, and then in the UK, I have just, you know, I've just received such wonderful attention and in a way, a sort of level of respect <laughs> that I, I I haven't really had before. And also, people know my work now. They know my name. They know my work. They're delving into my backlist. I've been invited to many, many international, very big international festivals. So I think in every way possible, winning this prize has changed my career. <laughs> take me back then. Take me back to his childhood you. You were the ultimate middle child, the fourth mm. of eight children. So what kind of child were you? Uh, I think, well, I, you know, so like you say, there were eight of us. So that's a lot of children. And we all, I grew up in a very big old house. So we all had, uh, we shared a bedroom with one other child. So I shared with my younger sister. Um, we didn't really get on. Um, but what happened was, even though we were a large family, once we reached a certain age, people paired off. So the two older sisters were kind of friends and then my older brother and brother just un- uh, just a year younger than me were friends. My two younger brothers were friends. My sister and I weren't particularly friends. So you were, you were kind of living in your little units, really. Um, my father was Nigerian. He came over in 1949. He was a very strict disciplinarian. So And I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, so it's quite a difficult time for um, him to raise black children in the UK. I grew up in Woolwich, which at that time was a very white area. It's not anymore. It's, it's very, very multicultural, but it wasn't at that time. So there was a lot of opposition to my parents getting married. My mother was a white English woman. She grew up in that area. Um, her parents, well, her mother in particular, disapproved of the marriage. But it was a, a relatively safe childhood it was a very sort of small childhood in the way that I think childhood can be in that we didn't really go anywhere. We didn't have any money to go anywhere. My mother's a teacher. My father was um, a welder. So And a Labour councillor. And a Labour councillor. He was the first... He was the first black councillor on Greenwich Council, in fact. That would have been in the 1970s, I think. Um, and yet we were sort of like the bogey family in the street, so we used to get our windows smashed in and my, my father used to chase kids who did that if he if he was around down the street and literally grab them by the sort of scruff of their neck and take them to their parents' homes and get the parents to pay for the damage, which of course you couldn't do now. Um, so even though that was happening and even though there was this kind of air of hostility It still felt like a safe childhood, you know. My parents stayed together for 33 years, which for a mixed marriage at that time was quite astonishing. Rarely went into London. I went to a convent school. We were Catholic, so we used to go to church. Um, And then I went to a girls' grammar school in Eltham. And my my childhood changed when I went to the local youth theatre, Greenwich Young People's Theatre, now called Tramshed, and discovered theatre and the arts and, and people in the arts. And... 
that was my introduction to sort of a creative life. So how did the theatre change you then, that, that youth theatre? Yes, well, I think I, I didn't come from an artistic family. My mother was a school teacher, um, but we didn't have many books in the house. We couldn't afford them. You know, she was looking after eight children, so she was incredibly busy. I used to go down to the library and so on. Um, we didn't go to the theatre. We didn't, you know, with eight children. How do you take eight children, you know, especially in the sort of 60s and 70s up to the museums and so on? We had school trips. So it just wasn't a creative environment. But going to the youth theatre, really enjoying the sort of community aspect of learning how to act and to create theatre um, in a very creative say again a very creative safe space where I felt very accepted you know I was the only black child there for most of my time there as I was at school but I've I did feel very welcomed and very accepted at the youth theatre and met the kinds of children I might not have met if I'd have not gone there because um, the, the children who went to the youth theatre were drawn from the area I grew up in Woolwich and Plumstead but also from Blackheath and Greenwich um, I met somebody who's still one of my greatest friends when I was 12 and she was half Iraqi and she came from Blackheath. Um, and I think it gave me a sense of purpose. You know, at the age of 14, I decided I wanted to be an actor. So it gave Brilliant. me a vocation uh, at a very young age. I got involved in drama at school. Um, it made my childhood very interesting. So what kind of roles were you playing? I don't remember so much at the youth theatre although I have got some old photographs and, and, and my, my friend um, from Blackheath, uh, she remembers me being given very good roles, but we weren't performing sort of famous plays or anything, we weren't doing Shakespeare or anything like that. But at school, I, I was cast at Cat, as Captain Cat in Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, uh, which was pretty much the starring role. Um, I also played Demetrius in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream at school. So I remember those two roles in particular. And it was early cross-gender, cross-racial casting, in fact. I was thinking back as well to you growing up with a school teacher as a mother and a Labour councillor. And I wonder if art and politics were in some way always intertwined for you. My mother's a very good storyteller. She wouldn't say so, but, you know, she was somebody, even though she didn't have time to read, she did, she did enjoy literature. If she didn't have eight kids and had more money, I'm sure she would have been somebody very much involved in the arts, as, as certainly as a consumer. And my father was a really political animal, and my mother was too, in fact, because she was a trade union rep at her school where she taught, uh, the last school where she taught, which was a secondary school. And my father was... Uh, somebody who brought politics home. You know, we had the Morning Star newspaper, which was the communist yes. newspaper for a bit, and we had the socialist worker delivered at home. At the same time, we also had Daily Mirror. He was um, a shop steward at the factory where he worked um, and, in fact, you know, was a very, uh, very uh, vocal shop steward and fine, uh, sort of at the end he got fired because of something he did. I can't remember. My mother will remember. Um, but they got rid of him because he was um, too much of an advocate for the workers. He joined the Labour Party as a councillor and then he got into trouble with them because um, he was uh, having um, some kind of fight over racism with a fellow councillor and he hit him because that's my dad was a boxer. I mean, you know, he was a very... Phys he was a little man, but he was a physically strong person. 
and he could stand up for himself. And I think that actually was really important when you think about the frontline racism of the 60s, well, 50s. He came to Britain in 1949, so the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, he was able to stand up for himself. So anyway, so the Labour Party got rid of him and he then stood as an independent and continued for several years as an independent councillor. So, uh, but don't forget also that I was Catholic. And I think the uh, influence of being raised a Catholic is also evident in my work, in fact, because from the age of probably about four or five, I went to church every Sunday until I was 15. And at the age of 15, my mother said, because she was the Catholic, my father wasn't, she said to each of her children at the age of 15, if you don't want to continue going to church, then you don't have to go. And every single one of us <laughs> stopped going to church. When I first went to church, the Mass was said in Latin in the 60s. And in fact, my first school was a convent school. With hindsight, I can see that it introduced me to the beautiful language of the Bible and actually of the Catholic service. And that, in a sense, was inculcated into me from a very young age. So you have all that religion and then you have the sort of political activism eventually from both my parents. And I think you have quite a potent mix. And I think that was very much the shaping of me as somebody who's a writer who wants to be a voice in the world, wants to make a difference, but also loves language and, and the possibilities of it. Well, I'm fascinated that you knew from a very young age that you wanted to be a voice in the world and make a difference. Where did that come from? I didn't know um, from a young age. <laughs> I knew from when I left drama school. I don't know if you, if you think that, is that a young age, 19, 18, yeah. 19? Yes. Yeah, so then that was a young age. Um, I went to a drama school called, um, it was then called the Rose Bruford College of Speech and Drama in Sidcup. And I tried for three seasons to get into various drama schools. <clears throat> and in the end, I, I got several offers. But Rose Bruford College was one where they had a course called a community theatre arts course. And I was racially aware enough at that time to know that there was, there was very little opportunity for me as a black woman actress out there in theatre or on television. Because this would have been, what, 70, late, 80? Yeah, late 70s, because we were invisible. We weren't really present at all. Um, I remember the first time I saw a black British woman on television, and that was Angela Bruce in Coronation Street about 1975. So I'd, I was already 15 years old at that stage. So this course was a community theatre arts course. And because I'd been involved in theatre from the age of 12, I knew what that meant. I knew it meant theatre that was coming out of communities and theatre for communities. And I, I decided to, to, to go on to this course because I thought there would be employment for me in that sphere. And it was an acting course, but it was a course where they um, encouraged you to create your own theatre so you did existing plays, but you also created your own. And as it happened, because this was a very progressive, radical course, especially for that time, there were five black women on my course, myself included. And naturally, we're being encouraged to create theatre, drawing on all the issues that were important to us. And we got together and started to create black women's theatre. That was how I became politicised. But also... The people who were t who taught on that course were theatre directors who were um, had themselves formed theatre companies in the seventies um, and were very political animals. And most of them were women. So we were being taught not just by the people on the faculty, 
and there weren't that many of them, but they were all political animals, but also by people who had formed their own companies and were coming in to pass on what they knew. So you can imagine that was a really fertile environment for me to become a political activist through theatre, although, of course, we didn't call it political activism then. We just called it community theatre or fringe theatre or alternative theatre, as in alternative to the mainstream that did not represent our interests. So when... I left drama school. Three of us formed our own theatre company, Theatre of Black Women. And we should say this is the first black women's theatre group. It was in 1982. And we just thought, OK, well, there's very little work out there for us. Let's form our own work. Let's form our own company. And that's what we did. And initially we wrote and performed in our own plays. And then we expanded and were able to bring in other people, such as Jackie Kay, whose first play... Um, He's a Scottish poet laureate. Yes, yeah. now she is. And her first play uh, was Chiaroscuro, which she, she wrote for us. And so the company expanded over a period of six years and we were able to get funding and so on. Um, and then, as is the way with lots of theatre companies and arts companies, we lost our funding. But I was there for six years and then burnt out and didn't want to fight the funders to keep our, to keep our grants and so on. And every year we'd have to apply for grants. So then I left theatre behind and then went off travelling and um, eventually decided that I would just continue with writing and see where that would take me. And that was then um, the beginning of my journey to becoming somebody who would eventually publish books. It's funny reading Girl, Woman, Other, you know, there's a, a two characters in particular who started out in radical theatre um, and then one of them becomes this kind of you know, big success at the National Theatre and that is both um, a, a great thing and also a kind of burden. I was interested in how you played with the idea of the career paths of women in this group. Absolutely, because, you know, I think one of the things the book does is explore where where people begin and how they get to where they end up, you know, at whatever stage they are in the novel. Um, the 12 women, Emma is the one who's the theatre director. She's the one who comes of age about the same time that I did, forms the theatre company, Bush Women Theatre, with her great friend Dominique, or the fact that, that they become great friends, and then spends nearly 40 years working in fringe and alternative theatre, uh, staying true to her creative poetics as such, you know, very much strong black women's productivity, but then ends up having a show at the National Theatre and then has to negotiate what that means for her because she's always seen herself as an outsider railing against the status quo and suddenly the establishment opens its doors and says, you know, come in and do a show at the Royal National Theatre, which, of course, is the most prestigious venue in this country. And she does it, but she does it on her own terms. And the the, the play is a success. Um, even though some of her peers consider her to be selling out. Do you know, it's doubly ironic that you won the Booker Prize for this novel. <laughs> I know, I, you I know. thought about how that whole way of of looking at your own success and the, the, the open, if the Booker is a kind of literary establishment, has it opened its doors then? Well, it definitely has, you know, and it's, it is sort of life imitating art in a sense. But of course, when I started this book and when I wrote uh, Amma's section, I hadn't really... No idea what was going to happen with, with Girl, Woman, Other. You know, at the beginning of this year, 2019, the book was still in proof stage. 
hadn't gone out to readers. We weren't getting feedback from it. You know, often a book will go into a bound proof stage and then you'll send it out to readers and they'll give feedback on it and you get a sense of whether this book is working or not. Well, that didn't happen until about March with this book and then it was published in May. And so I had no idea that it was going to become the book that it is now, which of course is very exciting for me. But I was interested in that journey from from being somebody who is, you know, feels very oppositional to the mainstream and feels ignored by the mainstream and has to fight to be a voice um, in society to somebody who negotiates the establishment. And that is, in fact, what I've been doing. So Anna hasn't really been doing that. She's been creating this kind of sort of very marginalised theatre for something like 40 years whereas I have slowly worked my way into what would be seen as mainstream positions. But, you know, so for example, I'm a professor of creative writing. I'm the vice chair of the Royal Society of Literature. I mean, how more mainstream can you get? I write reviews for the national newspapers and so on. Um, but I I haven't lost my political um agenda and responsibility in any way. So even though I'm in these institutions... I am still advocating for inclusion because that's so important to me. And also setting up various diversity initiatives to open the doors for other people. So I may appear to be an establishment figure, but if you look at what I do within those institutions, then actually I'm I'm sort of dismantling the status quo from within. Oh, definitely. As much as I can. And also, I mean, you're very practical and you have spoken about how you sacrificed earning money and owning property for your creativity. Mm. And it was only when you got the professorship, mm. which is 2011, that you mm. had salary and mortgage and all those things mm. that you know we, we used to find security and stability. And I wonder how you look back on that choice and the importance of the conversation about money, particularly mm. when, I mean, I should say, we did discuss it before we started recording. I feel in the 70s and 80s, artists could make a living on the dole. You know, uh, they didn't have to worry about having a job to be creative. I feel very sorry for the the young people coming of age now and wanting to go into the arts in in London in particular, but in it probably in any city, because it was very, very different then. So I made a decision to follow my heart and to do what I wanted to do. So the idea of choosing to go into any kind of office job was completely anathema to me for the whole of my life. Even though I have to say, I I did have arts administration positions, um, in particular in the in the 90s, but they were always part-time jobs. I never worked more than two days a week, but they were uh, th- those jobs supported me creatively. But I was able to live very cheaply. And in the 80s, I lived in short-life housing properties. And these were the most amazing beautiful old Victorian houses that the council at some point were going to be doing up, renovating. And they allowed these housing associations to take them over for as long as as necessary. And I can't even remember what the rent was, but the rent was just nominal. And there was nothing wrong with the houses. They were just a bit, a little bit run down. And they would be communal houses where you'd have your own room, but you share a kitchen and other facilities. Friends of mine lived in squats, in, in King's Cross, as in fact Emma does in Girl, Woman, Other, and Euston, and in Short Life Housing in Covent Garden. And so given that's all disappeared, yeah. what, what do you think young artists, like a young Bernadine today, could do, should do? Well, people leave London. 
which makes it easier. But even I think leaving London, I, I don't know if you can live in the way that we did. I, I say to my students, you know, I teach creative writing. So I teach students who want to have a, an artistic life. And I say, you have to juggle it with some kind of job that's going to support you. And I, I think that's what they have to do these days. They have to go out there, get a job as a teacher or in marketing or whatever. And if they're really committed to being writers or to practicing their art, then they have to do that in the evenings and do it at weekends. I mean, my job isn't just my job, it is my life. Yeah. And it has been my life, all my life, you know, really, since I was 12. It's something that I feel passionate about. First of all, it's theatre, now it's writing. And I can't imagine doing anything else. And I think that's what keeps, or at least that's what kept me going up until I got the professorship. And you're right, I did not have my own property until I was, what was it, 51? Um, a lot of people would not put up with that. And in fact, I know a lot of people who came up with me and decided that they wanted to earn a salary, get a mortgage, get a pension. Maybe they also had children, which I think is an important factor. I've never had children, so I've never had to worry about that. Um, and then they, they went down that path of living a more conformist life and having the sort of financial support that they wanted mm -hmm. But they left their creativity behind. I mean, they, they didn't need to leave their creativity behind, but they did. And then much later in life, they regret that. And now, because I've won the booker, it's almost like I've been vindicated. It's like, wow, you can put in 40 years of, you know, relative obscurity and, you know, a lot of financial struggle and then come good eventually. It's possible. Did you kind of know one day that you were going to win? Because it seems to be you've been very single-minded. and Extremely single-minded. I used to do personal development courses in the 80s. No, in the 90s. So I had left theatre. I was developing my skills just writing books. You know, I, I wrote my first, my first book was published in 1994. I was becoming aware of the literature world as opposed to the theatre world and thinking about what I could achieve within that Certainly was very, you know, my first two publishers were tiny. They were not publishers who got any attention for me whatsoever. It was only when I went with Penguin in 2001 that I began to get sort of serious mainstream Which attention. Which book was that? With that was with The Emperor's Babe. So I, yes, well, I did these courses and I kind of started to take on what we would probably call sort of American ideology around positive thinking. Tell me about this. You wrote affirmations. These are kind I of wrote affirmations. Yeah. I still you know, do. I, I used to do it when oh, I was did a teenager. You? Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, they pretty much will come true. And but wow. tell me about yours. So these wow. are statements you say. I will do this. No, it's so so. I learned about affirmations, and I learned about creative visualization, and I yeah. I learned about positive thinking, and I learned about goal setting. So with the affirmations, I learned that they should be positive, present tense, personal. So, for example, every time I write a new book, or rather rephrase that, every time I begin a new book, I will write down, this is an amazing work of art, something like that. Even though I haven't written the book, right, that's a positive affirmation. That is marshalling all my creativity and forces to do the best that I can do, rather than giving in to negative thoughts, which a lot of us have, especially if we've been raised in this society not to feel that we're really fully part of it, not to feel entitled, 
that the negative thoughts will be, you know, oh, you're not good enough. It's, it's going to be rubbish. Uh, don't bother. Okay, you're going to give it a go, but, you know, nobody's going to publish it. Da, da, da. So one of the ways to counteract that for me um, since the 90s has been to write these positive affirmations. And I do that for small pieces of work as well. Sure. Or for little, you know, if I have an important meeting, if it, things that I want and also to to become the person I want to be as well, to be really positive and to just go for it and expect the best. If I don't get the best, just bounce back from it. But you did write one for the booker in I 1997. Did. I, I don't know if it's like, I, I did write. One year, yes, years it's ago. all out there now, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I've got to go back on my notes, but definitely in the 90s, 90s and the noughties, probably even up to the 10s, I would write affirmations for every book that I published. What is the best that this book can achieve? How do I get my work out there into the world in a in a sort of bigger way than it has been already? One of the ways to do that is to win a major award, and the big award is for for the novel is the Booker. So I would write affirmations for the Booker, and I have to dig them out because I've kept all those affirmations. You know, it would be this this book is amazing. This book has won the Booker, and of course I never did. I never got anywhere near the Booker. I was never lo- long listed for the Booker, let alone shortlisted. What it did was is as, as I said earlier, it kind of marshals my energy just to to strive sure to... but but when you did win the booker what did it feel like given that you had thought about the idea of it as a motivation for so many years it's I wouldn't say it's a motivation because then it sounds like I'm just going for the True. prize the motivation is to write the books I want to write and to fulfill myself creatively and to be a voice in the world and to be heard that's the motivation one of the ways in which that can happen is to win the booker. So uh, that's that's how I would frame that. No, that's quite important distinction. But when it you is. did win it then? So when I did win it, I was just, you know, absolutely delighted and ecstatic. And then it, certainly in the days following it, I was just, you know, I was saying to my husband, oh my God, I visualised this, it's come true. You know, it was an amazing feeling. And I, I kind of thought, oh my God, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> the visualisation, somehow it worked. The power of Positive Thinking by Bernadine Evaristo. Well, I'll tell you what worked. What worked was that I kept writing and because I have this very positive mindset, that's not to say that I can't be negative because I can, but I try and aim to always be positive. It meant that my creativity has always flourished. You know, I've always been productive, producing the work that I need to be producing. And then eventually writing something which when I began writing it was not a topical book was not something that anybody was particularly waiting for it was... and it's funny it feels like it's timing is so so I began it right. in 2013 so by the time 2016 2017 came around I began to feel that this was the right time for this book but when I began it it wasn't because... why did it feel the right time because 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 we had had the black black lives matter we'd had the me too yes movement stroke moment and it felt like the culture was shifting in terms of people of color being heard but also particularly women of color being heard especially through the medium of social media in a way that we were able to communicate with each other especially young women who are so good at it and and develop projects and reach audiences and so on and so forth and then the so-called mainstream media is then listening in on that and wanting to be part of it as well, realising actually there are untapped audiences out there. So things, by the time the book came out this year, everything had shifted and there was, so so there was much more receptivity to the book. Um, And then also, 
you know, the Booker Prize had shifted. Clearly, you know, with four women um, on the jury and one man and two women of colour. So it felt like a perfect jury for a book like this, Mm. that they may be more receptive to this book than if it was 20 years ago and there were four white upper-class Tory politicians judging the prize and one Oxford academic female. You know, and I don't have a list of all the juries for the Booker Prize, but I do know that often in the past there have been many sort of establishment figures and very few women of colour have judged the prize. It's changed in the last few years. I want to talk about your voice as a writer because, you know, it's really striking looking at Girl, Woman, Other. There isn't necessarily you know, traditional quotation marks around what's report, what's speech and what isn't, but it's very clear who's speaking. There's this incredible confidence about how you break the rules of how prose is often laid out. There's almost something more poetry-like about yes. the layout. But equally, the subjects you choose. So, you know, The Emperor's Babe is a, a kind of young black woman in Roman London Mr. Loverman is um, a kind of Caribbean man who's a Londoner but has been leading a double life, kind of hiding his homosexuality. They're they're so specific and distinctive and yet they're so varied. Um, So both your prose and your subject choices, tell me about how you you choose them. Well, I think the the style often chooses itself in a way. So, you know, I've written verse novels. So The Emperor's Babe was a verse novel and my book subsequent to that, Lara, was a verse novel and I wrote a novel with verse. With each of those books, I didn't plan to write verse novels. With The Emperor's Baby, it began as a few poems um, that I was writing about a black girl growing up in Roman London, and then it grew into this novel in verse, but that was not the intention. With Lara, which is a verse novel about my family history, a fictionalised version of my family history and my childhood, I, I tried to write it as a straightforward prose novel. It didn't work. Three years, 200 pages, threw it in the bin, literally, and then spent two years reworking it as poetry, And it became a long narrative poem, if you like. But then we chose to call it a verse novel. Um, Soul Taurus is a novel with verse. So it's a novel which mixes poetry and prose separately and also scripts and also other things. So it's really formally experimental. But actually it began as a regular prose novel. It didn't work. So then I broke it up into these other forms and it became a very experimental form. With Mr. Loverman, originally the character of Barrington, who's a 74-year-old gay Caribbean Londoner, it was just told in his voice. And we needed, you know, my editors at, at um, Penguin were worried about how his wife was being presented because we only saw her through his toxic gaze. So he's gay, he's been in the closet uh, 60 years, been married for 50 years. She doesn't know he's gay. They have a terrible marriage. There's so many women who've been through that as well. Yes. So then I, I thought, how do I solve this problem? And I realised I had to give Carmel her own sections. And then she had her own sections, but they were told in the second person and it was in this sort of poetic form. So that book also then became experimental. With Girl, Woman, Other, I call it a fusion fiction in terms of it's got these 12 primarily black British women and their stories are kind of fused with each other. But also it's written in a form which I call a pro-poetic patterning. So it looks a bit like poetry on the page, but it's not. There are very few full stops. Mm. But you you have the breathing spaces through how the, the prose is patterned on the page, you know, the, and the gaps. And you know exactly 
where you are when you need to know where you are. Yes. You know, it's no confusion in terms of the the reader's experience. Yes, it's it's a very readable. I know that some people have picked it up and looked at it and thought, oh, no, I can't read this. But actually, two or three pages in, you realise it's extremely readable. So that form was really a form that I came up with intentionally to tell the story of these 12 women. Did you have any influences helping you develop this style? Any one you'd read or um, been affected by? Before Girl, Woman, Other? Yeah. Uh, but even well, more I, generally? I've always liked quite experimental work. If you if you think about um, Girl, Woman, Other, then I would say a very early influence was Intozaki Shange's For Colour Girls Who Consider Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, which was a choreo poem uh, which reads beautifully as poetry on the page, but was also a performance piece, which was very successful in America in the late 70s. I saw it in the early 80s in London, West End. And she has seven African-American women telling their stories through poetry. I would say that was something that I was very inspired by. But also as somebody who came up writing poetry and then poetry for theatre and then just independent poems and then verse novels, I would say that, you know, I'm very inspired by all kinds of poets. Kamau Braithwaite, for example, who's this um, Barbadian, Bajan, Bajan, Bajan poet. You know, he's very experimental. I like his work, but I, equally I like, I love the work of Derek Walcott, who's a more traditional poet. Poets have inspired me more than novelists, I would say. That's really interesting. I would ask a couple more questions about the booker because clearly, you know, as you say, it's made a lot of people go back and look at your um, catalogue and just see the, the range of work that you've been uh, creating over the, the decades. And one of the first questions that people asked was, fantastic to see you win it, but some people were uncomfortable that they felt, why hadn't you won it on your own? And I don't know if you feel you can comment on that. Well, yes, I, I've been asked this a lot and I my, my answer hasn't changed at all. I, I can see where they're coming from. And if I hadn't won it and I was looking at what had happened, I would probably think, oh, they should have just given it to the black woman, right? But from my perspective, I'm just delighted to have won it. And I'm, it's a sh we're sharing it. We're joint winners. I haven't won half a prize. I am equally a winner of the prize. And it's such a gift. It's such an incredible gift that I, I have no problem sharing it. And also sharing it with Margaret Atwood, <laughs> who is such an amazing writer and such an incredible figure um, and feminist in the world, I think is is a joyous thing, to be honest. And I, I think, think it's really interesting. There's something very oh, male capitalist about mistrusting sharing things. It was the same with yeah. the Turner. Yes, I um, know. Which leads to another question, which, of course, is when people were talking about the Turner Prize uh, for art and the shortlisted artists all agreed that they wanted to yeah. share it, a BBC presenter referred to it and said, oh, well, this follows the Booker Prize where Margaret Atwood shared it with another author. Mm. And you did tweet drawing attention to the fact that... And I, I want to read what you said. The BBC described me yesterday as another author, apropos the Booker Prize 2019, how quickly and casually they have removed my name from history. The first black woman to win it. This is what we've always been up against, folks. Yeah. What did you and that mean? got like 14,000 likes and so many people retweeted that it was an incredible moment actually because I, when I tweeted that normally people don't pay much attention to my tweets but everything's changed since the booker but people were so outraged on my behalf I was furious you know at the point at which I um, tweeted that because it was a case of being kind of very casually obliterated from history 
in that moment? You know, why didn't he remember my name? You know, did he not even register my name? If not, why not? And also it's very important because it's the BBC. And of course, the BBC is such a, you know, well, I certainly respect the BBC and it's sort of supposed to be the sort of gold standard of broadcast journalism. And then to just be casually referred to as another author, she's not important, you know, we're not even going to mention her name. I was furious. But actually, it was incredibly heartwarming, the responses to it, because actually that tweet went viral and it made the media very, very quickly... And it just became a big thing. They, and the BBC apologised very fast. They apologised. He, he apologised. Yeah. He sent me a, a personal email, just a very good apology, yeah. just saying, no, I'm really sorry. I just, you know, I, that shouldn't have happened. But it is about the wider issue of unconscious bias yes. and also the sort of recording of history and whose stories get told and who's validated and who's valued. And, you know, sometimes when I say this to people, they think I'm being over the top about it. He just forgot your name. That's all. It's no big deal. But actually, it's a really big deal. And I think we need to call it out when it happens, because if it's happening on a micro scale, it's also happening on a macro scale. And that's just not acceptable. So one of the things, you know, that I can do with my platform and many others do with their platform on social media is to call things out when it happens. And when it when it goes beyond social media into the sort of so-called mainstream media, I think it's a very powerful thing to be able to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Which leads to the third thing I wanted to ask in relation to the book, because it bothered me. So I went to bookshops straight after you won and I couldn't see your book. And I talked to people in the bookselling industry who said it was pretty appalling that the publisher didn't seem to have come up with enough copies, even if no one knew what the result was going to be, that there were these stacks of the Margaret Atwood book and then gaps where your book would have been. And it took a while till they got it. It did. It took, uh, I think, almost two weeks. OK, so it's a, it was a, such an unusual situation because Margaret Atwood was already selling shared loads of books, you know, more. I think she was the fastest selling or is the fastest selling hardback author in this country this year. So the bookshops were already stacked up with her books or rather stocked up with her books. My book needed to go and be reprinted. And I think normally that would be the case with a book a winner. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen. And so they they did what they would normally do. But the difference is that we won it together and Margaret's book was already in the shops. And so people were really upset at that. I knew the books were going to be there eventually and they were there and they still are there. But I still get people tweeting me and saying, look, WH Smith's, you know, they've got her book and not your book and so on. But I can't really get involved in that. You know, the thing is, the book is selling really well. It's a bestseller. My book is a bestseller. And that's the first time for me. And I'm very happy about that. Can I ask what difference it's made um, as far as you can talk about numbers of any kind? Oh, I think it's something like four, over 400 percent more sales of my of this book. And that's just since, hardback, obviously. Since winning the booker. It's, it's been a Sunday Times bestseller several times since it was published. And it's been in the, um, the Times, Saturday Times bestseller list, which is for Waterstones, I think, since it won the booker. So it is really selling. Obviously, Margaret is leading the way, but there are many reasons for that. You know, not, not that just that it's a terrific book, but of course the television series and the fact that this has been a big cultural moment, the fact that she's brought back characters from The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Well, 
One of the other things that fascinates me about you in so much of our conversation is this idea that you've always kept true to your your inner instincts, both in terms of kind of politics, identity, and your creative vision. And one of the ultimate achievements of achieving in your field is, you know, you get recognised, whether it's fellowships or honours. And your Brunel University colleague, Benjamin Zephaniah, the poet, who's also been a guest on How I Found My Voice. Oh, right. enough, of course, you'll know, refused an honour. And we had quite an interesting discussion about why he couldn't accept something which was a British Empire medal. It's something that many people of Commonwealth heritage grapple with. The historian David Olsego has accepted one. You have an MBE and I'm interested about your decision to take that. Yeah, I, I was awarded that in 2009 and obviously, you know, there is no longer a British Empire, but it is, it's an archaic name, but it's basically an honour from my country. That's how I see it. And I think if we want to be fully valued and fully included in everything this country has to offer, then receiving one of the top honours that this country has to offer is part of that. The fact that it's an unfortunate title is, for me, it doesn't matter because there is no longer an empire. And everybody knows that when you accept one of these honours, you're not supporting the empire. You're just accepting an honour from your country. And so that's how I see it. And, you know, I need an upgrade. (laughs) <laughs> Dame Bernadine Rooster, have you written the affirmation yet? No <laughs> I'll write it for you um, The other thing, I'm very conscious that we're speaking today just a few days after the general election and on the one hand we had Tony Blair give quite an interesting speech this morning about the future of the Labour Party You obviously have Labour Party history through your dad and equally a real anxiety, I think it's fair to say, in this country about the rise of populism as represented by Boris Johnson and his kind of reformed or reforming of the Conservative Party. Again, someone who really remembers the radical artistic identity of the 70s um, and 80s. Do you see parallels or useful lessons from your experience Absolutely. these days? It feels like we could be going into another sort of Thatcher era you know, and I grew up under Thatcher and it was very politicising for many people. And I think, you know, we have to look at it positively. I think there has been a lot of complacency, probably, politically, among young people up until fairly recently, probably until the referendum. And I think now they're becoming more politicised, certainly certain sections of society becoming more politicised, and I think that's a good thing. I think it could be a really exciting time for the arts you know, because people will be looking at how can, how they can counteract the sort of what could be in a potentially a really oppressive, almost totalitarian right-wing culture with all kinds of artistic products and ideas and outputs that will not have been in existence before. Although, of course, there's been massive cuts to local authority arts budgets, which is significantly That's different true. to the That's 70s true. and 80s. That's true. So we, we were funded by the GLC, even by the ILIA, Inner London Education Authority, the Greater London Council. But the Arts Council is still there. And they might just have to be much more inventive. And, of course, a lot of stuff that can happen on the internet isn't necessarily going to be expensive. But I think we have to look at it positively and look at how people are going to find their identity and their voice in this potentially very disturbing culture that we might be going into. How are you going to use your voice now that you're the Booker Prize winning 
Bernardini Barista. Well, I, you see, the thing is, I have been using my voice you all have along. Already, you absolutely. Know, I kind of set up diversity initiatives and I do sort of um, speak out against things. And so I guess that I will continue to do that, but I will be heard much more than I have been. And that's that's great. It is great, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bernardini Barista, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Hello again, it's Farah Jassat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars, including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today.